Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 1A. An Introduction to Byzantine History. This episode is being recorded in early 2015, three years after the podcast launched. The History of Byzantium is a series that continues the narrative of the History of Rome podcast by Mike Duncan. The purpose of this episode is to offer a quick introduction to the series if you haven't already listened to the History of Rome. And of course, I do recommend that you do. It's an amazing series, but I appreciate that it's 179 episodes long and you may just want to dive into the Byzantine story. So today I'm going to try and tell you a few important things that you need to know to become quickly immersed in the narrative of politics and theology that the regular episodes present. As we begin, I'm going to assume that you know the outline of the story of Roman history that the city-state of Rome grew from its mythical origins in 750 BC into a republic, which began to politically dominate the other states of Italy. By about 250 BC, Rome essentially controlled all of modern Italy. A series of major wars with the Carthaginians, Hannibal and his elephants and all of that, led to the Romans picking up a number of overseas colonies. These started around the Mediterranean basin, but soon men like Julius Caesar and his nephew Augustus dragged France, Spain, the whole of the North African coast, Palestine, Syria, Turkey, and the Balkans into the empire. By the time Augustus died in AD 14, the rough boundaries of the Roman world were set. A few more areas like Britain were added later, but the basis of the empire was around the Mediterranean. Transport by sea was so much cheaper than land that the Mediterranean facilitated the economic integration of Europe. Spices and silks could arrive in Egypt or Syria and be shipped to France and Italy. Grain fed the giant metropolis of Rome, and intellectuals, labourers and soldiers could zip around the Roman world in a way which made the empire possible. 
any real introduction to Byzantine history begins with what is often called the crisis of the third century. The second century AD is often thought of as the golden age of the empire. Men like Trajan, Hadrian, and Marcus Aurelius ruled the empire at a time when the Roman army could dominate its enemies, the disunited German tribes north of the Rhine and Danube rivers, and the Parthian Empire, based in Iraq and Iran, to the east of the Syrian desert. The economy was solid, with the odd conquest bringing in a fresh influx of slaves and gold, and generally, if you lived near the Mediterranean, your family might have been untouched by war for several generations. That all began to change during the 3rd century. The power and dominance of Rome forced those outside the empire to improve their military capabilities. The German tribes, for example, would trade with the Romans and could see the vast riches on offer inside the empire. Some wanted to take it by force. Some wanted a better trade deal. Some wanted to migrate there. The constant friction of living next door to such sheltered wealth saw the German tribes slowly develop what are called super-confederations. Men put aside their local rivalries to accept the overlordship of one king. This is how groups formed that give us the famous names of the Franks, the Goths, and the Vandals. Meanwhile, over in Iran, a Persian aristocrat called Ardashir overthrew the Parthian king and began to reform that state into the Sassanid Empire, or Persian Empire. Better utilising the resources of his domains and determined to prove his right to rule with victories over the Romans, Ardashir and his successors began to make periodic war on the Roman Empire and more than held their own on the battlefield. At the same time that the enemies on the frontiers were becoming stronger, the Romans suffered from two very nasty bouts of plague, possibly smallpox and measles. This all led to a series of military disasters and constant political coups. Dozens of emperors and would-be emperors came and went as the armies marched around, stamping out these fires. The man who emerged to reform the Roman state was the emperor Diocletian. He determined that the empire needed many more soldiers to protect the frontiers, and therefore needed more tax revenue to pay for them. Diocletian set up a far more complicated and professional bureaucracy than had existed before. He also split the job of emperor into four, so that each corner of the empire could have a military and political leader on hand to deal with the various crises in their region. One of Diocletian's successors, Constantine, would do away with this system. In a series of bloody civil wars, he reunited the empire under his rule in the early 300s AD. However, several important changes had taken place, which began to show us the classical Roman Empire morphing into something more recognisably like the medieval Byzantine state. The rise of the Roman Republic was based in part on the fact that men competed with one another for political prominence. This meant that the wealthy used their own money to build public buildings, throw entertainments and maintain the roads. 
they would also compete for military commands, a prestigious and necessary part of political advancement. And this type of behaviour was common across the cities of the Mediterranean, thanks to the spread of Greek culture under Alexander the Great and his successors. So when the Roman Empire was formed, the emperors could rely on the fact that men in the provinces already were administrators, army officers, and politicians. And more to the point, they wanted to be. That's how men made their names and their fortunes. But things had now changed. Centuries of peace within the Roman world meant that wealthy men didn't need to serve in the army to make money. Then the raids of the Goths and the Vandals fractured the sense of security that had led men to live in towns with no walls. And the easy-going tax regime of the early empire was replaced by the imperial bureaucrat carefully evaluating your wealth. In other words, men began to retreat from the old ways of political participation. They kept their money to themselves. They made sure that their sons avoided a hard military life. And they stayed at home instead of going into town. That's a huge simplification, of course. Men and women, for example, did still get together. But instead of the forum or the theatre, increasingly it was the church which drew in the crowds. Since his death in the 30s AD, the worship of Jesus Christ had spread throughout the empire. It had gathered pace during the 3rd century and was officially endorsed as the religion of the Roman state by Constantine, who became a Christian himself. And even though Constantine reunited the empire under one ruler, he couldn't do away with the realities that had pushed Diocletian to split the empire into quarters. The empire still had dangerous frontiers in different places. This had meant that, for example, Rome, a city hundreds of miles from these trouble spots, had become far less relevant by the 4th century. None of Diocletian's colleagues worked from the imperial city, instead preferring fortified towns closer to the empire's edges. Constantine saw the need for a new capital for himself, both to place him closer to the frontiers and to be free of the old pagan cults so that his new Christian worship could have a centre of its own. This brings us to Byzantium. Modern Istanbul is built on the last piece of land in Mediterranean Europe before you reach Asia. The city which occupied this vital crossing was the Greek city of Byzantium. Thanks to a unique inlet of seawater, the city had the virtually unique position of being surrounded on three sides by water. This meant that only one land wall was needed to keep an invader out. Constantine's shrewd eye could see the basis for a city that no Goth or Persian would be able to sack. Construction began, and the city was consecrated by the emperor in 324 AD. When Constantine died, his successors reluctantly returned to a political division of the empire. Rather than four, more often two emperors would now rule, one in the west and one in the east, the latter ruling from Constantinople, the city of Constantine. 
This practical division is what leads to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire in the West and the survival of the East, which historians have come to call the Byzantine Empire. The Eastern Empire had several advantages over its western half. Despite the powerful threat which the Sassanid Persians presented, this was also the source of much wealth as traders made their way down the Silk Road through Persia to Syria, or ships came around Arabia to Egypt. The fertility of the Nile Valley was also a key asset. It brought an annual surplus of grain that could feed the population of Constantinople, And in general, the East survived the transition from the crisis of the 3rd century better than the West. Its cities were less exposed to the German tribes. Its trade networks were more ancient and deeply embedded than those in the West. And above all, Constantinople stood solidly untouched by the sackings and pillaging which other cities suffered. This meant that the new imperial bureaucracy had a safe base to work from and this new source of employment drew ambitious and intelligent men into the service of the state. Meanwhile, in the West, the poorer and less secure towns were abandoned in the face of increasing German immigration. Rome itself was sacked twice, and barbarian kingdoms sprouted up, while the regiments of the Western army dwindled away. So in 476 AD, the German warlord Odoacer simply relieved the last Western Roman emperor of his office. German military commanders now began making themselves king in France, Spain and Italy, while the Romans of the East, the Byzantines, continued business as usual. And what kind of business was this by 476 AD? It was an increasingly Christian world for a start, The rabble-rousing preachers and bishops of Alexandria and Antioch had become the great men of their day. Theological arguments dominated intellectual discussion and could turn violent. The government in Constantinople was run on the basis of access and influence over the emperor. This meant in practice that the palace became a place of intrigue and backstabbing. The various administrative office holders would vie with imperial princesses, barbarian generals, and eunuchs of the bedchamber to gain the emperor's ear. The emperors were now distant, semi-divine figures. Long gone were the days when Augustus might dine with the family of a leading aristocrat. The emperor now only left the palace to take part in a procession or go to church. They almost never went out on campaign themselves. Meanwhile, out in the streets of the capital, the population was developing a sense of its own importance in matters of state and theology. The passion of the crowds could be turned to loud demonstrations or even arsonous riots should they strongly disagree with imperial policy. They were the people of the Christian capital of the world, after all, and they reveled in their outspokenness. The language of the East was increasingly Greek and little else. The spread of Christianity had seen Greek come to replace most local dialects, and slowly Latin was seeping out of official circles. The East, like the West, had come to rely increasingly on German troops to run its armies. Most of the Eastern field armies had German commanders during the 5th century. It only made sense given that the best fighting men were of German stock. But this meant that there was a very real danger that the East could go the same way as the West. 
In fact, the Eastern Empire almost fell into such a crisis as our story begins. When the Emperor Theodosius died unexpectedly in 450, there was no rightful successor in place to take over. The Emperor's sister Pulcheria was the closest blood relative to the throne, and she was determined to maintain her own power at court. She made a deal with one of those barbarian generals, Aspar, and married one of his lieutenants, a man of Roman birth, named Marcian. Marcian would prove to be a decent emperor, but he was in his 60s when his reign began, and by 457 he and Pulcheria had both died of natural causes. This left no obvious imperial candidate, and Aspar, the barbarian general, now held all the power. This was a crucial moment for the empire, and it's where our story begins. Would Aspar's choice of successor cement him in power, or prove to be his undoing? Find out on episode 2 of the History of Byzantium. If you feel like you would rather have longer to get used to the sights and sounds of the Eastern Empire, then you can go straight to episode 10, where I walk the streets of Constantinople and describe what was there and how the city functioned. If you want, you can take a whole tour of the Empire and its government through episodes 9 to 13. The choice is yours. I hope you come to find the story of the East Roman Empire as fascinating as I have. And if you have any specific feedback on whether this extended introduction was helpful, then drop me a line at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>